Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. This is Brad Listy. Before we get started, I wanted to offer up a couple of last-minute holiday gift ideas. Is that all right? Do you mind if I offer up some last-minute holiday gift ideas? Do you have a book nerd in your life? Do you have an aspiring author in your life? Do you have somebody in your life who loves podcasts? Do you have somebody in your life uh, who likes to listen to two complete strangers have a conversation? If so, uh, my first gift idea could potentially be appealing. That would be a subscription to Other People Premium. It costs less than $10 for a year subscription It's a great stocking stuffer. It's a nice gesture. It's a gift that keeps on giving. When you give somebody a subscription to Other People Premium, you give them access to all of the episodes of this program, almost 400 episodes and counting. That's a lot of listening all year long. It's a terrific gift, Other People Premium. For more information, go to Other People's official website. That's www.otherppl.com. That's the show's official website. Click on Premium Access in the menu bar for more information. Another th- another way to go about it, you just give somebody a card with like 10 bucks in it and you say, hey, here's a subscription to Other People Premium. Just get the app on your phone, sign up. It's on me. Okay? <laughs> so that's one, uh, that's one idea. The second idea is a uh, subscription to the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Do you know what the Nervous Breakdown is? TheNervousBreakdown.com is an online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. You can sign up for it uh, for nine ninety nine a month. You get a new book delivered to your door every thirty days. So here again, it's a gift that keeps on giving. You give somebody a book club subscription. You're giving them books all year long. Every month, they're going to get a book. They're going to think of you. They're going to have positive thoughts about you. They're going to be grateful to you. They're going to be indebted to you. You're going to enrich their uh, lives. Am I selling this, people? Am I being persuasive? Other people, premium subscription to the uh, premium subscription, a subscription to the premium subscription of this podcast, or a subscription to the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For more information about that, go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. I think I've rambled enough. Have I explained this thoroughly? Should I keep going? Okay, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. 
just one person at just one time. Right. Right. Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somewhat methodical in its approach. This is what you just downloaded. How's it going? I think you're uploading this actually currently. If you're listening to this, you're technically uploading it, aren't you? Are you uploading this into your brain? How's it going? Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm freezing my ass off in my garage. It's very cold in here. And I want to emphasize that I'm bundled up right now. I'm wearing a wool coat. I'm wearing a fleece. I'm very layered. I'm very puffy. I'm suffering. My guest today is Brandy Wells. She is the author of several books, most recently a novel entitled This Boring Apocalypse, available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. Brandy Wells and I uh, you know, will be in conversation momentarily. Brandy uh, is a Southern girl. She's a Southern gal. We had a nice time. Uh, it was not freezing, as I recall, when she was here. It might have even been warm. It feels like it's either one or the other. It's very rarely temperate in the garage for whatever reason. So uh, I'm recording this today. Uh, Los Angeles uh, public schools were closed due to a general uh, threat, a bomb threat, I believe, received via email. The superintendent of LAUSD decided to close all LAUSD schools, affecting millions of people, keeping uh, however many parents home from work, affecting the economy. First day of final exams, kids can't take their exams, all because some asshole emailed a bomb threat, I believe. I think I have the story right. I think things are developing. I haven't been keeping uh, a super close eye on it. But I woke up, read about this online, and I've just been sort of pissed off about it all day long. The whole thing pisses me off. And it happens, uh, you know, obviously in the wake of San Bernardino, the terrible shooting there, also the terrible shooting in Paris, and then just generally the state of the world, the state of the United States with guns, the state of the Middle East, uh, our foreign policy adventures over there, terrorism, all of it. Just the bullshit of life. And now you've got some uh, some fucking dick. Probably just some dweeb. Uh, wherever he, you know, wherever he, or I guess she happens to be. Sending in this email. Threatening. As some sort of uh, dark prank. Or worse. But I have strong feelings about this. I don't think that uh, it was the right move at all to shut down school absent a very specific threat. And let's think about this a little bit. If you actually took the time to put a bomb somewhere, you're really going to email somebody and be like, Hey, there's a bomb. It's right here. Look for it. Or are you going to say, Hey, there's a bomb at all? seems a little bit unusual. I guess somebody might do that just to like spread a general fear, be vague about it. There might be a bomb somewhere, but you know, absent a very specific threat that's actionable you can't respond like this you can't do this to millions of people and you can't show all the wackos of the world that this sort of uh, thing will elicit this kind of response you can't show fear fuck them do not show fear live your life as if they don't even exist ignore them I mean, people who operate in this kind of darkness rely on being disruptive in this way. They traffic fear. That's their big weapon. You cannot let it get to you. And I know it's not easy. I say this as somebody who, and tell me if you, I'm, I'm probably not alone. Uh, lately, I've been at the grocery store. I've been at the mall. I've been wherever I've been, my normal life. And I'll be thinking to myself, okay, if a guy comes in and starts shooting it up, where do I go? I'm like running these scenarios in my head like a crazy person. 
You go out the back. There's a service entrance. Just go straight out the back. Don't even look. Just go straight out the back. <laughs> it's fucked up. That or I'll, I, I have also been, uh, from time to time, uh, entertaining these thoughts, uh, these scenarios in my mind where I'm the hero. Anybody else do this? Where all of a sudden you, you know, you're, you're in a store, you're at Target, and you imagine some, you know, crazy person comes in, starts shooting it up, and, and you decide to put your foot down, take the law into your own hands. You imagine yourself like sneaking around, army crawling on the cold white tile, sneaking up behind this dude and just beating him over the head with a baseball bat that you got from aisle 14, sporting goods. Anybody else been thinking like that? Am I the only like crazy person out here? who's been having mental movies like that, being the hero, just beating the person into unconsciousness, standing on his chest and waiting for the police to arrive. Am I crazy? <laughs> and I'm not a violent person. I'm, I really believe, I, 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 you know, I say this a lot. I'm an idealist. I like to say I'm a pacifist. I know that pacifism, uh, you know, it's not a 100% deal. If you're on a, if you're on a boat, and somebody takes over the boat and is going to drive the boat into an iceberg, it's okay in that context to save people by throwing the dude off the boat. You know, I'm just trying to say that there are scenarios in which violence is justifiable to protect innocent life, unfortunately. I'm not a violent person. But it is enraging, is it not, to see people with weapons preying on innocent people. It's just, it's just sickening. Or people uh, making threats like this to try to scare people, try to scare kids. Fuck you. What is your problem? So much darkness. And this is the thing. This is where you have to be better, I think, than these uh, sick people, is you have to have compassion for them in the sense that you have to recognize that their behavior comes from suffering, fear. They're afraid. Fear and anger go hand in hand. Mental illness, poverty, any number of circumstances combine to, uh, to lead to this kind of behavior. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to parse. I'm uncomfortable with this notion of evil. There's evil in the world. Well, there's evil behavior. That's for sure. But let's not like anthropomorphize evil as like a thing that floats around. I don't know about that. It seems like that kind of thinking can be used to justify some really bad behavior towards a lot of people, many of whom don't necessarily deserve it. I don't know. I don't think they should have closed down schools. I, I don't mean to get dark. I know this is pre-holiday. I know this is a podcast about books, but I feel like this is, you know, this is in the air. This is what's on my mind. That's what I typically do in the monologue. I tell you what's on my mind. I'm pissed off that they closed down school in Los Angeles. I think that's dumb. Show no fear. Mathematically, it's more dangerous to drive a car. Live your life. Fuck them. Show no fear. Thank you. Be docile during earthquakes. Be docile during stupid terrorist threats. Be docile. That's my message today, people. 
Be vigilant, but be docile. Be alert, but be calm. Be angry, but be kind. Entertain thoughts of hyperviolent heroism, but in the end remain nonviolent. That's what this requires. It requires holding two opposing thoughts in one's mind at the same time. It requires, it requires uh, entertaining the possibility of two opposing behaviors, but erring on the side of passive, peaceful behavior in almost every instance. I think. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Brandy Wells. Uh, her new novel is called This Boring Apocalypse, available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. I had a great time talking with her. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Brandy Wells. I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for four years. And even though I only lived there four years, like, I feel like it's mine. Yeah? Yeah. And that feels like home now. You like Tuscaloosa? I did like Tuscaloosa. What, what about it did you like? Well, I, I did my MFA there. Um, and it's a four-year program, which is sort of different for an MFA. Um, and it was it was a really small town, and there wasn't much to do, and there were a lot of other people who didn't have much to do. We were all there together, <laughs> drinking really heavily, yeah. um, and you know, just hanging out. It's just a nice sense of community. Yeah, there's a there's a really nice community there. Simpler because, existence. Yeah, there's nothing else to do, so everyone has to hang out. Yeah, and, like you have sort of a built-in forty friends because they they have to hang out with you. What so about the like? Is the arts community like? Is is there one? Um. Maybe. I, I don't think I saw it, if there was one. But I, you had your, your MFA friends. Yeah, yeah. That that was really all there was. I didn't really know anyone else. I think a lot of people are better at like establishing adult friendships, but I have no idea how that works. No, it gets harder. I've talked about... <laughs> I don't want to like go too deep into this because I feel like I've, I've like beat this drum so many times on this show, but it, I think it gets harder the older you get to make friends. Yeah, I have no idea how to do it. Do you have any friends in Los Angeles? Um, I have one Alabama friend who I see occasionally, and then a couple of people that I've met on Twitter. Okay. Um, that like live too far for me to hang out. So, I'll be like, your friend. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, good. Welcome. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome to my garage. Thank you. <laughs> um, and you're originally from the South. Yeah, I'm from so Georgia. So you you feel at home in the South? Um, I thought I really hated it, and, and then I lived for a year in Illinois, and now I'm here, and I, I sort of miss it. And you're homesick. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And I didn't think I would be. I think I talked a lot of shit about it while I lived there. It's so it's so funny. I, uh, people go through this. I think I've been through this. Where like you're somewhere and you're you're kind of sick of it and you're talking shit about it and you want to get out and you're like, I just got to get out of here. I'm sick of this place. 
uh, I've outgrown it, whatever the, you know, logic is that you have in your head and then you leave it and then you miss it. <laughs> yeah. I even kind of miss like football culture, like, cause football is huge in Tuscaloosa. It's, it's a religion. Yeah. Like drunk people would urinate in my yard. Like you miss that. I, yeah, I miss the, the drunk. Smell. Like I would bang on the window and they would wave at me and finish peeing. So. Roll tide. Yeah, roll t- I still think that like if I have like a good sandwich, I'm like roll tide, uh, but I never went to a game or engaged in it at all. Did you know Nick Saban is only five foot six? Yes. I just learned that. And I was like, wow, that's funny. He's a powerful man, though. He makes $9 million a year yeah. in salary. Yeah, he does. They pay for his house. Like the the boosters for Alabama and the money that he means to that school. <laughs> I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by the business of like college athletics, especially like big-time football in the South. Like it is a strange exercise. There's a Bear Bryant Museum. Like so like if your parents come in from out of town, you would take them to the Bear Bryant Museum. Yeah. Did you do that? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. And uh, it's it's like a corrupt, I think it's a corrupt institution, but it's also like the greatest entertainment in America in some weird way. It's the most popular anyway. Sure. I get sucked into it. Yeah. You you do not. No, not at all. You're a better soul than I. I just, I don't have the attention span for it. You don't? No. What do you have the attention span for? Not much. Can you read, can you read books? <laughs> I can read books. I can't sit still for a movie. Like I have to stop a movie or if I see a movie in a theater, I have to leave several times and sort of move around. Really? Yeah. I have a really hard time like sitting and doing one thing. Why? I don't know. I guess my mind wanders and you, I feel antsy. Do you have ADD? I don't think so. You're going to get up and leave during this? No, I think I can do this. <laughs> I think I can do this. Um, so born in Georgia? Yes. Whereabouts? Um, it's, I was born, I think, in Waycross, but I, I grew up in Vidalia, Georgia, which is the sweet onion city. Yeah, Vidalia onions. Yeah. I'm aware of those. We had an onion festival and a man that dresses in an onion costume. He's Yumyun, the onion. Okay. Onion eating contest, onion street dance. Um, so did, I don't did, like... it, did it smell, did the town smell of onions? No, I don't think there are actually any onions grown in the city limits. I think it's in like the four surrounding counties and the name that worked the best was... Vidalia, and that's not onions. is that Flannery O'Connor country or no? Um, I don't think it's it's quite. It's quite okay. Yeah. But you so you grew up there and you uh, enjoyed it. Um, no. <laughs> you wanted to get out. I did. I thought I wanted to live somewhere bigger um, and not in the south. You have a big family. Um, not really. I had kind of a small family. Like yeah. only child. No, I have one brother, and then one. I have some step siblings. But my mother married like after I was out of the house, so like. They're still sort of at a distance. So wait, she married and, and you got step-siblings after you had already left? Yes. And they had already left too. Like they were, they're older than me. They're okay. like adults. So you see them and it's like, I guess you're my step-sibling? Yeah, yeah. It's I hard think... to form that bond. I mean, if you grow up with them in the same house, it's one thing. But to suddenly just be shoehorned into siblinghood. Yeah, they're all really nice. I just don't know them. They're like adults with children and I'm like a good deal younger than all of them. So Yeah, well, I feel like that's the case too when like someone's got an older sibling who's like significantly older mm-hmm. you got like a 20 year spread it's almost like your sibling is, is sort of like an uncle at that point that makes sense yeah i don't know so, um okay so uh what did your folks do um my mother cuts hair like and across the street my stepfather cuts meat at a grocery store so they both cut things i guess <laughs> which is nice and there's i feel like there's i was reading a story of yours and there's cutting involved I guess, yeah, I guess it turns out I'm really into like body dismemberment and I didn't know that I was really into it. I just, someone else pointed it out. Like you sure do write about cutting people's body parts off a lot. And, and w- okay. Let's psychoanalyze this. Where does this come from? 
<laughs> I have no idea. Your mother's cut hair uh, your whole life? Like, she went back to school when I was a teenager to, to cut hair. So, like, there were, like, heads screwed to counters around the house and, like, spare fingers because she had to learn to do manicures laying around. So it was kind of scary to wake up in the middle of the night and there were just heads. Well, see, this makes sense to me <laughs> that this would show up in your work. Sure. This would make an impact on a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you cut hair? Oh, not even a little. Not even a little. No. I have no grasp on any sort of beauty thing. My roommate's a makeup artist. She keeps pushing these, like, makeup products on me. I think she wants to improve me, and I don't know what to do with them. I don't know what they're for. Like, toner? Toner for your face? I don't know what that means. And then there's, like, a liquid hair mask that you put on your hair. And I guess it's it's like a face mask, but it's for your hair. I don't know what to do with them. Yeah. No idea. I'm sure, you know, I think toner just makes your skin firmer, right? It's like to prevent sag and wrinkle. Oh, God. Maybe maybe she noticed something. Uh, you know, I think it's preventative. Like, this is because I, as I was saying before we came on, I have this thing where I'm susceptible to health trends that does not, um, that I would say that includes, like, cosmetic stuff. Uh, so someone will say, like, I think I was reading an interview and someone was like, you know, here's why you, sh- you need to wash your face and moisturize it was because not because of uh today it's not going to make you more beautiful today or like you know you're not going to improve the health of your skin today but like it's for 10 years from now that shit stays in my head and so at night i'm like i'm like brushing my teeth before i go to bed i'm like i better wash my face like because 10 years from now you don't fall prey to that stuff (laughs) i I think i still look really young you do people don't believe my age you're in your 20s I'm 31. Okay. So yeah, people like don't believe my age. Like I still get ID'd like to buy liquor. Which I can is, see that. Which is crazy. My roommate told me it's because I don't wear enough makeup. Maybe so. I have no idea. And you and you just have no interest. I have no interest. Yeah, it seems like a lot of work. It's so much work. Yeah. Um, our bathroom is full of like all these things, and in the corner there's like a little bar of soap that's mine. How did you wind up with this roommate? Craigslist. Craigslist. Yeah, I was moving from thirty hours away, and I have a cat and a dog, and it's really hard to to find a place that you can have a cat and a dog for cheap. Yeah. From thirty hours away. Well, you know, uh, that's cool, and I think having a roommate, even if it's somebody that you don't know, like that's a good experience. Could yeah. be could foster some sort of creative. Uh, maybe one of your future works will involve like a. Makeup artist, or she does a lot of weird things. Like she has a flashing red light that she holds on her face to make her skin younger. Have you heard about this? No. Yeah, she does it every. Don't night. tell me about this. She sits on the couch <laughs> and watches TV and like holds it up to her face and it flashes red, just every day. What is it doing? Like She's... infrared? Like I asked her, and all she would say is, "It's going to make my skin look younger." Damn. So I don't know. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend like she wears a hat everywhere she goes, like to protect herself from the sun. Uh, and her skin looks fantastic. It's smart. She's done this her whole life, so I'm thinking to myself, well, I think my skin's already ruined. It's too late. It's too late. Oh. I've been out in the sun. I mean, I'm pretty good. I've been pretty good like the last five years, but preceding that, I didn't care at all. I need to get, uh, I mean, you can't have those years back. You sort of just lose <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you grow up, what kind of kid, what kind of kid were you in Georgia? Oh, I was, I was the really quiet nerdy like didn't have a lot of friends like sat by myself kind of kid i think you know were you happy i i think i was i think even then i found people really stressful so i I think i like to have a lot of time away from people introversion oh yes yeah yeah you're gonna like you're gonna have to like go home and just like like lie down in the dark after this (laughs) yeah pretty Uh, much so okay so were you writing as a kid um, I think 
I wrote really bad poems and like saved them on a, like a floppy disk with like a password because yeah. I thought someone wanted to read my floppy disk <laughs> poems. So, yeah. Do we still have this floppy disk? No, no, it's all gone. I have no idea. Or if it, if it is, it's at my parents and I don't know. Yeah. Uh, either of your folks, uh, writerly? No. My mother read a lot of like trashy romance novels. So I read a lot of those. So I read a lot of like... Harlequin? No, like, do you remember V.C. Andrews? Yeah, like, sure. Like, real rapey, incesty. Yeah. <laughs> so I've read a lot of that as, like, an Was eight that Flowers in the Attic? Yes. Okay, yeah. My sister grew up reading V.C. Andrews. Yeah. My older sister. It's addictive. But, like, I can't imagine why my mother let me read it at, like, eight and nine and ten years old. Yeah, it seems like a, I see, it seems like that was, like, a thing. I guess, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older than you are, so uh, I feel like V.C. Andrews, Flowers in the Attic became a thing in my hometown. All the girls were reading it. Um, I guess is that a rite of passage? Is that a book all girls read at some point? I don't. I don't remember. I, I guess I didn't talk to anyone about my like. <laughs> oh, sorry, I forgot. You were sitting by yourself in the corner. You had no idea what anyone was yeah. doing. Um, and this was in Vidalia. Uh, yes. Okay. And then, well, what does your dad do? Like, where was he? Um, well, my stepdad cuts meat, but my dad died when I was thirteen. So, oh, he did. But he worked at a nuclear power plant. And oh, geez, what happened? He had a heart attack. And, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's a long time ago. But he worked at a nuclear power plant. Yeah. And like lived, Homer Simpson. Yeah. We lived in like a nuclear neighborhood where all the houses sort of look different, but there are only like three different styles of house and it just flip flops. Was it like a government? Like did the government subsidize the neighborhood? I don't think so. I just think the town sprung up because the power plant was there and so they built it really quickly and like one person just built all the houses. Oh, yeah. It's my assumption. Yeah. So like everyone in the neighborhood, like their parents worked at the plant. Any concerns about radiation or... I worried like, a lot as a kid. Yeah. I was really nervous about it. And, like, my dad would show me, like, the thing that would test him. And, like, he could, like, show me that he wasn't radioactive because I was really concerned. And he assured me that, like, there wouldn't be any sort of meltdown. Uh, but I don't think it made me feel any better. Yeah. Because I, f- I feel like uh, nuclear concerns, especially for somebody like me, I guess the Cold War was maybe more pronounced in my childhood. It was a thing. Like the wall, the Berlin Wall had not fallen until I was almost in high school, I guess. Oh wow! So, you know, when I, when I was in elementary school, we actually had a drill where we had to hide under our desks in case there was a nuclear war. Because <laughs> that's even, helpful. Yeah, yeah that's going to help. Just get under your desk, everybody, when the you know when the bombs are finally dropped. But uh, I remember, you know, like the Russians. You're scared of the Russians. You're scared of nuclear war, and it wasn't something that I obsessed about every day, but it did occupy a corner of my imagination. And I think, like, God, if Dad was working at a nuclear power plant and if there was one nearby, it must have always sort of been looming there as, like, a possibility, right? Oh, sure, yeah. And it was, like, 20 or 30 minutes, like, outside of town, but it was still it was still there. What was it called? Uh, plant Hatch. Is it still there? Um, I assume so. Um, it might have changed. It's Georgia Power. It's Plant Hatch. It's had a few different names. Okay. But it's between Baxley and Vidalia. Okay. And then, um, like, is your brother older or younger? About three and a half years older three and a half years older and uh what was he what's he like um he's very blue collar like he drives a truck um and they have two kids and his wife stays home with the kids and she's she's really nice like i don't talk to them very often yeah. um, we have some trouble now communicating on the phone like something's happened where i can't understand his accent <laughs> he says things like earnestly says get her done have you yeah. heard this? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, he says it and means it like in a genuine way <laughs> and draws out his words and like i there's a little bit of a gap there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's culture. I mean, the thing about it, because my folks are from Louisiana, and I have a lot of family in the South, 
and I go down there to visit. I grew up as a kid going down every year. I haven't done done it that you know quite that often in my in my adulthood, but I go down fairly regularly. There's lots of weddings and so on. And what strikes me is that uh, it's a really distinct cultural shift, um, like way more distinct than like if I fly to Chicago. Do you know what I'm saying? Like oh, yeah. you can go a long you can go a long ways. I could fly up to Seattle. I could go to Montana. I could go to Chicago. I'm not going to feel it quite as much. But when you go from just about anywhere in the country and then suddenly you're in Georgia or Louisiana or Mississippi or Alabama, you feel like you're someplace else. Yeah. Culturally. For sure. Um, and it's got its own lingo. It does. Okay. Uh, you don't have any kind of accent, so you didn't... No, I was, I was raised in the Midwest. Okay. But my folks, born and raised in Louisiana, all my extended family pretty much down south. Okay. So I feel... And, you know, the weird thing, too, is that Indiana... Even though geographically is Midwest and further north, is culturally southern in a way that is would be recognizable to you as somebody who grew up in the South. I was surprised that much of the Midwest is just the South but cold. Yeah. So like I did Illinois and I spent a little time in Kansas and Missouri and sure. like it's just the South but cold. That's right. And like downstate Illinois, especially southern Indiana. Um, I mean Indianapolis and then as you get up towards Chicago, I think it's sorta of I don't know. It depends where you are. It depends how, like what town you're in and everything else. But there's definitely a southern vibe uh, to Indiana. Martinsville, Indiana, is where the uh, Ku Klux Klan was headquartered. Oh wow! Yeah. So like mark of shame, but like that should tell you something about the sensibility. Yeah. Um, so when you were growing up in the South, did you feel like speaking of, <laughs> speaking of the KKK? Did you feel any kind of uh, you know really explicit racial tensions? Like was that something you grew up being like hyper aware of? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Um, it, there was a lot of racism that seemed strangely linked to Christianity in the town I was in. Um, so a lot of that feels really weird still for me. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it's sort of rampant in my family. And those are things you just have to, like, learn to talk around if you want to get along. Because I, I struggle with this as well. Because I have family members who are racist. Um in really kind of subtle ways. Like it's not usually like, that's the thing about racism today. I find is that it's typically not super overt. That's become, unless I guess you're in a, in a, a room where everyone's racist and sure. you feel like you can speak freely. But like when I, I don't see that, but you, you get it in these subtle ways and it feels like a lot, there's a lot of speaking in code and, uh, you want to say, you want to think that you would just say something and be like, you know, shut up or that's crazy or but then it's your family members and these are people you only see once a year or once every few years and i i can find myself not knowing what to say like you just wind up keeping your mouth shut or shaking your head or do you really want to get into a debate over dinner at some family function you know it's going to get heated do you know what i'm saying yeah it's tough to know where to you know where to pull your punches and where to speak up and I think I spoke up a lot of times and it didn't make any difference and it made things worse. And I went away feeling like worse and bad. So, so that I don't go away feeling horrible. I try just to skirt around it, change how, the subject. How did this not affect you? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Like I should have ended up really different. <laughs> but did you read, I mean, you, do you think reading had anything to do with it? Yeah. Did that have an effect? I think so. I think there's a, there's a kind of privilege that comes with like education and reading. And try, so I try to keep that in mind, but yeah. So, but I mean like, did, was there a book or anything like that you read as a kid that 
really opened your eyes and did you have like would you were like suddenly like oh my god this is effed up or did you have a parent who was telling you like listen this isn't right oh no i sure didn't you didn't <laughs> i didn't have a parent that was telling me it wasn't right no um i don't know i can't like mark one thing so um but somehow you did yeah somehow i did so yeah. it almost makes me wonder if there's is it a genetic thing <laughs> uh, seriously like are you genetically predisposed to like I could say the same thing in in the context of religion. Like I sometimes wonder, like, are people who believe genetically predisposed to believe, and are people who can't access religion at the level of belief like that genetically predisposed to not be able to? I don't know. I think my entire family is extremely religious, and I'm not. So, like, you think my genetics would have been similar to theirs in some way? I know, but I'm, I feel the same way. I was kind of like the outlier in my family with regard to religion. And I don't know. I don't know why. Because it seems like, you know, not that everybody's super pious anymore. The older we've gotten, the more people have strayed, I think. But, um, you know, everyone was basically church going except for me. And that was from a very young age. Like, it just never took. And it's like, I so, sort of wonder sometimes, like, was it just my DNA? Or was it something, what happened to me? You know? I, would, I would read some research about that. I think that would be a great book. Maybe so. Um, so... When you talk about how you're uh, kind of a loner, um, was this something that goes back to early, early childhood, or is this something that came on as an adolescent? Um, maybe I had friends when I was, like, really little, and then, like, it, it got where, like, I could only have one or two friends. Like, I didn't work well in a group. I don't present well or make a good impression, so, like, I could only, like, handle one or two people. Okay. And that was what, around what age? Oh, gosh, like 12, 13. Yeah. Hmm. And then, um, and then you started writing poems, keeping them on a floppy disk. Yeah. And then you get through what high school. I mean, was it fun? Did you have any fun? It was okay. I was, I was a, a majorette in high school. I tore a baton. I played soccer for a year, but soccer was like the sport that like, if you couldn't play another sport, you played soccer. So like, it was okay. I like did things, I guess. You went through the motions. I went through the motions. And yeah. like, in, like, in, like after losing your father, like, did you suffer depression? Like, how did you cope with that as an adolescent? That's a tough time to. I mean, it's never easy to lose a parent, but it seems like a tough age. I think I was probably a little more withdrawn after that, so that makes sense because that was when I was thirteen. So, did it shake so. your faith? Um, I think my faith was already a little shaken at that point. Yeah. And that was just like okay. Yeah. Just pushed you further along. Sure. Um, so what what happened? Then you went on to college. Yeah, yeah. You I, got out of you got out of the Onion Town. I, well, only just barely. I went like an hour away to school, and then took maybe six or seven years to do my undergrad. Sort of the extended. That's okay. Yeah. It's a good place to take your time. You're doing the extended education. It seems like all the way through. Oh yeah. So, wait, you went to University of Georgia? Uh, no, I went to Georgia Southern. Oh, Georgia Southern. Which, Where, where's that? It's in Statesboro, Georgia. I don't know that. No, no one does. It's okay. You have any fun there? Um, I, I, I worked a really awful job the whole time I was an undergrad. I started working at this realty company where I was a secretary. And then I, uh, people above me kept getting fired for stealing money. And then I like, slowly got promoted until I was the property manager of the place. And it was this sort of slumlord situation where we weren't making repairs and people were really angry. A girl came in and tried to, like, get me with a stapler once. 
I got like a death notes. A staple gun? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like people didn't like me. I was the one that was evicting them, and I was the one that was fining them. I was the one that wasn't repairing their toilets. Oh, God. Yeah, it was a terrible job. Wow. That's heavy. And so somebody on high was telling you, like, we can't repair. We can't do this. Yeah, it was a property management company, so we had a bunch of owners that were like not willing to spend any money on their crappy property. That sucks. Yeah, it was really horrible. And it was worse because all the residents were really low income, too. So, like, they just felt really crushed, I feel like. It was a horrible time. Crushed enough to pick up a staple gun. <laughs> just, like, fuck it. Yeah, they would put gum <laughs> on my car and, like, leave notes telling me I was next. Oh, my God. Yeah, they didn't like me. So what uh, What did? What happened? You got out of there. Yeah, well, I had a lot of free time there. So, like, I did a lot of writing at work. Okay, right? so you started to write at Georgia Southern. Yes. That's when you, is that what you majored in and you're like, this is what I want to do? Uh, well, I have a bachelor's in creative writing and then a bachelor's in, in literature. So, yeah. Double I, I major. Guess, yeah. And what, what why, why did you decide to do that? Was it based on, I mean, books that you had read and loved? Like, when did that switch flip? Um, well, I always liked to read, and so I always knew I wanted to do something with literature, and I guess I just had a few creative writing classes that I really enjoyed, and like, um, I knew other people that were like a little uh, further along than me that were getting MFAs, and I thought, oh, I want to do that, and that's better than being a slumlord. Did you, <laughs> did you, uh, but not by much. <laughs> no, it's, it's roughly the same. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you exist online in a literary capacity during that time? I think I started trying to do the online thing maybe around 07, 08. Um, because it strikes me that somebody who is introverted and doesn't do well in like big groups and like likes to just like be alone, the internet can be sort of a refuge in that way because you can kind of pick your times. If you have enough, you can step away from the computer, you know, like theoretically. Yeah. Um, did you find that you took to it? Yeah, I think so. I think I like have a lot of people that I would talk to online and there was the the blogger thing where people would link to each other on the blogger and yeah, I did that. You did all that. Yeah, I did all that. You did you make any like lasting friendships? Um, I think that's around the time um Matt Bell uh, ended up Who chatting. Has was just here a little while ago. Yeah, yeah. I, when I applied for my MFA, he like read my writing sample for me, and so did Roxanne Gay, uh-huh. who I had been talking to a little bit at the time. So like a little, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So okay, so you're writing at this real estate job. Yes. Um, and then you're submitting to journals. Yes. When did you get your first acceptance? Oh, it must have been around that time. I like submitted a lot, like really poorly and in the wrong way, uh, for like a year. Um, but then like, what do you mean really poorly and in the wrong way? Um, well, like I would format things really strangely and someone had told me I had to submit in like courier font. So I was like submitting in courier font. I was writing these cover letters that were like pretending that I was really familiar with a publication. Like I enjoy your publication and especially the story about X and I would have just picked a name off the contributor list. Right. Um, so I can't remember. Maybe the first one was a magazine called Gotti. You remember Gotti mag? It's, um, C.L. Bledsoe, Bledsoe, something like that. Um, so I did that. Um, I did a lot of online publishing for a while. And I wish I wish a lot of it I could take back, right? So now it's like really easily findable. There's so much shit online that you just wish you could scrub. Yeah, I really do. <laughs> it's, but I guess that's just, I mean, it's almost like everyone's going to be in that boat if everyone's not already there. So you might as well just not worry about it too much. Yeah, I just wish I had waited to submit maybe a few years until I was a little... More secure in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I guess you could always email them and be like, do you mind taking that down? Oh, no, I would never do that. <laughs> you wouldn't? No. And so what do you think is the right way to submit? What did you learn from doing it wrong that you then corrected 
to do it right? Um, I don't know. I think I like started submitting to the right places, like places where my work would actually fit, places that I actually enjoyed reading and had actually read. And I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. I think I was so excited to start with that I was like sending work to like crazy places, like like the Antioch Review, and like no, the Antioch, they're never <laughs> gonna publish me. Well, it just sounds like more authentic. Like you were authentically, be like, I read you, I like your, I like your sure. site. I think but, I, you know. But maybe you have to do it wrong first. I don't yeah. Know. Well, I mean. That's certainly the way I've done almost everything. <laughs> I was thinking about that like just yesterday. I, just, I know people make their, everyone makes mistakes, but I feel like I've, like everything that I tried to do creatively, I do like spectacularly wrongly for a long time, like in every possible way before I finally start to figure it out. Like I'm not a quick study. No, I do that. I definitely do that. And then later I'll have a friend that'll come along and they'll be doing it in the wrong way. That was the wrong way I was doing it. And I'll get really condescending. Like, oh, you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing that. Don't you know? Um, do you teach them? Do you te- do they, do they, are they rece- uh, receptive to your <laughs> instruction? Like, yeah, they, they have no idea that I'm telling them this because I did it wrong like six months before. And yeah. they're like, oh, you know so much. Well, see, but that's the thing though. I kind of, this is how I try to, to uh, you know, make myself feel better. I'm like, you know nobody is maybe better prepared to explain how to do it than somebody who's done it in every possible wrong way. Yeah. I'm the person to listen to. I can teach you like how to find an agent. Oh, you can tell me how to do that. Nobody fucked that up worse than me. Like I went to New York city dressed in a suit with an empty briefcase because I was so clueless and my parents were so clueless. They're like, if you're going to have meetings in New York, you need to have a a suit. Like that was what they were thinking. That seems reasonable to me. uh, That's what I thought. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm showing up to these meetings in a suit and these agents are looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy? (laughs) I mean, this was years ago, but it's like that level of incompetence that I think like a person of a higher intelligence would never, would just, you know, they would compute that that's not the right way to do things very quickly. Took me a while. I did get an agent though. Well, how did you how did you go about doing it? What's the right way? Um, well, I mean, I think I think the instinct to go and meet with people is a decent one because it's hard to go into business with somebody who you've never laid eyes on before. Though I have heard of it working perfectly that way. I mean, you know, everything's so virtual these days that people meet their agents online and it's like three emails and suddenly they have an agent. But um, I think being familiar with an agent's roster of, you know, uh, clients is really important and understanding like their sensibility from that perspective. Um, I think query letters should be short. Um, and I think that they should involve name, name dropping, which is, I'm, I'm not even kidding. I think that like, I, I mean, God, I'm no expert, but it just seems to me like if you've published an X, Y, and Z, if you, if your work has been blurbed by X, Y, and Z authors, you know, dro- dropping a couple of those into your query letter is not a bad idea when it comes to querying agents, because I think that those things serve as like risk limiters for them. Like it makes them feel like, okay, this person's been vetted. And if I bring this, like if I'm a junior agent and I bring this client to my boss and say, Hey, I want to try to represent her. Um, they have some ammunition like that. She's not just like some crazy person off the street who has no bona fides. Okay. If that's the way to say that. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, that's like one of the pieces of advice that I'll sometimes give, which seems like counterintuitive because name dropping is, you know, traditionally thought of as gross. Yeah. But if you're thinking of it from the perspective of an agent, you know, blurbs work. Testimonials work. Okay. I don't know. Don't listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
okay, so you are at Georgia Southern. You're writing. You're working this terrible real estate job. You're getting life uh, death threats. Yes. From disgruntled uh, renters. Yes. And you're getting two degrees. Yes. You're there for six years. Yes. Statesboro, Georgia. Uh, what else was happening besides writing and besides working at this job? Did you do any drugs? Oh, yeah. Lots? Oh, I hope my parents don't listen to this. I don't know. Um, not a ton. Um, but I think I had a, a year or two of, like, trying things. And I, like, went about things in a really backwards way. Like, I didn't uh, smoke pot until, like, after I'd done everything else because I was so averse to, like, <laughs> smoking. Because my mother is, like, a chain smoker. Like, four oh. packs a day. And, like, I was allergic. Four packs a day? She would wake up in the night to smoke. She would leave the grocery cart in the store to go outside and smoke. So, like, smoking for me was really gross. Four packs? That's like smoking while eating. Yeah. Oh, and it was, like, marble reds. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I, like, didn't want to have any part of, like, smoking anything. Yeah. So it was just gross. Um, so I did coke a few times and didn't like it. I did ecstasy. I liked it. But, I mean, you get old and, like, I don't have time to feel like shit. And that's how I feel. That's, like, the big thing. You learn. I mean, you know, you have your experiences and, um, did, w did you ever have any valuable experiences? I mean, I know, like, all experiences are quote-unquote valuable, but, I mean, did you have anything that really, you felt like, oh, my perspective really shifted in a fundamental way or positive way or I, don't, I had a boyfriend that like went too far with it and ended up going to jail and being in rehab and like i think i saw what a mess it could be yeah um, and it was never like a mess for me like i still had a job i was still going to school like i wasn't like out partying like i yeah. wasn't that fun so right um but i definitely saw like how bad it could get for a certain kind of person. It can ruin people. Yeah. It can kill people. For sure. And often does. It seems like increasingly. It's like all these people overdosing on opiates or whatever. It's depressing. Yeah. Um, what about like hallucinogens? Do you ever have any crazy experiences with those? I, I never did. I felt so nervous about something that would like last a long time and I like couldn't end it. So I didn't like the idea of like being stuck in an experience. Like no one could ever convince me to do it. I saw Sen everyone else doing sensible it. girl. Well, that, but if you're in a room, if you're the sober person or like the, the relatively sober person in a room full of people tripping, that might put you <laughs> off it. <laughs> yeah, I was that person a lot. So you're, what, what were you doing? I think I would I would drink really heavily, <laughs> right? Um, but oh. like. I have a theory about this because I was, I was that person too. I was sort of like the m most restrained one for a good portion of my college years uh like the back half of my college years like i kind of went through my phase very quickly and then i was sort of done and i was much more cautious and restrained uh but i would drink when i socially when i went out and what i found is that to be the drunk guy in a room full of people on ecstasy is the best it's the greatest i recommend it to anybody if you're going out people are doing ecstasy don't take ecstasy just have a few drinks relax and enjoy everyone will be so fucking nice to you people are giving you massages they're like telling you how much they love you it's really nice i saw a, a like a 17 year old girl at a comedy show recently like on ecstasy heckling the stage get like drug out like she had to like she's heckling on ecstasy yeah yeah like she's kind of he like heckling? pleasantly heckling <laughs> like i love you say more but like the guy couldn't keep going when oh. she was talking and i never want to be that girl for no. sure yeah, that's the thing. Like, you can get too happy. Yeah. And, like, not everybody's feeling that love. Yeah. Everyone in the room was, like, sober. Maybe they'd had, like, two glasses of wine. And, and she's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. This, like, super young girl that probably shouldn't have even been there. Right. Yeah. That's embarrassing. Yeah. 
I hope she's embarrassed. So, yeah, somebody, that's like when you wake up the next day and you're like, oh my God. Um, okay, so when did you get out of Statesboro? Um, I think I left around 2010, and that's when I went to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So. Your beloved Tuscaloosa. You, you know, like it catches a lot of slack, but for me it wasn't even really a Southern experience because I, me and maybe one other person were the only people from the South, so everyone else is from somewhere else. So I was really insulated and sort of hidden from like the racism and like any kind of bigotry because we were all these like liberal kids like together. Do you feel like your writing advanced in this program? Yeah, I did a lot of writing. I had a lot because it's a four year master's, like you have a lot of time. Four years. Yeah, I had four years. Did they pay for it? Yeah. Holy yeah. It's shit. It's a four year funded program, which is how I think they get people to live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Right. <laughs> right. So that has a pretty good draw. Um and the Black Warrior Review is there. Um it's really, I don't know, it's really nice. That's and you know what? The the thing too is that like when life is simpler and you don't have like lots of things pulling at you socially and you don't have lots of distractions like that's kind of an ideal environment in which to work on fiction and writing long form writing in particular yeah i had a lot of like social activities that were just me and three or four girls like sitting in a room on our laptops for like hours and then maybe drinking when it got evening but we were just writing or like exchanging writing and like that was really nice like a lot of the the writing and the learning sort of happened separate than the program itself so yeah nice. yeah yeah and you still have a lot of these friends to this day i do um i have a friend now she she had gone to the phd program in utah but dropped out and she's like traveling with a sideshow now so like what do you mean a sideshow it's like the last traveling sideshow um in america okay it's like world of wonders she swallows swords and eats fire she does yeah Jesus. Walks on knives. did like, she do this when you knew her uh we like hula hooped a lot and she was like really good at it she could do like five or six of them and like juggle um and so you hula hooped with her i would hula hoop i could do like one hula hoop and i could do a few tricks all right like i could throw it in the air and catch it on my body and like reverse it i like, would not like just talking to you meeting you i would not <laughs> think to myself it wasn't the sort of drum circle hippie kind of hula hooping. Oh, okay. so I think we were always sort of into like circus arts, that sort of hula hooping. It's different. It's like more tricks. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you're into like circus wise? No, I couldn't. I was never good at anything. Like I tried to juggle and like. But this girl can swallow swords. She swallows. So you learn with a hanger. Apparently you like oh. jam a hanger down your throat. <laughs> oh, yeah. So like she's really happy though. So she travels the country. Yeah. Puts yeah. on sideshow. Yeah. It's like carnies. Yeah. That's a, but that's kind of a, isn't that a rough crowd she's know. running with? She's sort of rough and tumble herself. So yeah. I think it's nice. Yeah. And I don't mean to prejudge. I just like, like no. in, in the cultural consciousness, it's like carnies or sideshow people. You'd think like, oh God, is this. Well, some of them are beautiful. Like they're like, uh, they're scary looking clowns with lots of piercings and tattoos. And like, they're just gorgeous to look at. Now so. I feel like a dick for me. I shouldn't have said that. No, it's okay. I have carny prejudice. It's okay. I need to work it out. So you come to Los Angeles. You're going to get your PhD. You're extending your education. How much of this is a sincere desire to establish yourself as an academic and to get teaching work versus just not wanting to go out and get another shitty office job? <laughs> um, it's a little of both, but like right now I'm really feeling the, the second one, right? Like I don't know what else to do. Um, I need more time to think about it. I need more time to make myself marketable in some way. Um, and I, I tried applying for jobs and like I applied for like 60 jobs and no one got back to me. So I think I'm not very hireable right now. Well, you know, it's also super competitive. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, I can't even get like an office job now. Like, I don't know what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. And it's like, 
you, what do you do? You go online, you search for jobs, you submit a resume through whatever website, you twiddle your thumbs and wait. It's horrible. Does that work for people? Have you ever heard of anyone having that work? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a big like practical joke or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so are you working on a book? Yes. What are you working on? Um, I'm working on like sort of a, a more plotted narrative thing than what I normally do. And it's um, a girl falls in love with the last boy on earth who still has a nose. And at this point, everyone is like removing their noses, sort of like circumcision. Like it's just uh, normalized. <laughs> and so she's pursuing this boy with a nose. So. Again, body parts are coming into. Yeah. What is that? It's like, let's drill down into this. What is it with you and body parts? I, I have no idea. I, I guess I'm, I'm really into like body horror though. Like I like to read about it. I like to watch it. Like what? Like horror films? Yeah, like anything that's like really visceral or violent or do you bloody. Have, do you have fears of this stuff that you're working out? No, I don't think so. I think I just enjoy it. You just enjoy it? Yeah. Um, that sounds creepy. It does. <laughs> <laughs> like what are, some, what are some of your favorite horror movies? I, I guess I like really bad horror movies whose like names I can't even remember because they, like, they didn't even go to theater and like... Maybe you can find it in the dark recesses of Netflix because, like, it's easy for them to have. So I can't even think of, like, do you remember The Lawnmower Man? I like The Lawnmower Man. I think that, I mean, that rings a bell. That was a good one. I went through it, yeah, I had my horror movie phase in, like, junior high. <laughs> I watched. Not it's to, still there. No, no, please. People, people love it. I just, I remember just, and it's, I think it's, it's somewhat common for adolescent boys to be, because there's lots of blood and bodily yeah. fluids and naked women, and you're just like, ah, oh, you know, it's like this puberty thing. Like I'm a lot like an adolescent boy. Though. Maybe you that's are. Nice. Maybe that's what it is. Sure. But you don't like. I mean, um, like body image stuff. Is that part of it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like all those things are linked. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, religion. You went through childhood being raised how? Um. They, they called themselves non-denominational, but it was definitely sort of Pentecostal, like spirit-filled. So people would talk in tongues and fall on the ground and like dance and run back and forth. That's um, what you were raised in? Yeah. Like this is the speaking in tongues? Yes. Oh my God. So I went three times a week from like... See, now we're getting somewhere. 18. This is what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really interesting because it all seemed so performative. And if I have to sit in this sort of performative space, like... I at least want to have something to watch. Well, no, that's the thing about like, uh, you know, Southern churches and like the, the culture of it is a lot more colorful and the social aspect of it because you, it seems like, uh, everyone's into it. Oh yeah. It, so it's like a thing, you know, it's a social thing as much as it's a spiritual and a religious thing. And then it's also, I guess, especially when it comes to the Pentecostals, like more performative and entertaining. Yeah. Um, I, my friends are really scared of it, though. If I brought, like, friends to church, they're like, your church is really scary. I don't <laughs> want to come back. And I'm like, oh, but it's all fake. It's fine. We're just watching it. It was theater to you. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think I even faked it once. I was like, I think I can do that. I think I was, like, 15 or 16. So, speaking like, in tongues? Um, I didn't speak in tongues, but I, like, raised my hands and, like, sort of shook around and fell on the ground and, like, flopped around like a fish. And they bought it. And they, like, came and, like, prayed over me and, like, put their hands on me. And, uh, yeah. They're all really happy. Like I'm, I'm always fascinated when I watch like the laying of hands or I watch people being like, you know, it seems like electric shock, you know, yeah. is flowing through their body or whatever when somebody touches them or they feel the power of the Lord or people speaking in tongues. Uh, I always wonder where the line is between sincere belief and theatrics. Like, where's the doubt? There's got to be a twin. Like when someone's speaking in tongues, like how deeply invested are people and how many of them are thinking like, 
is this real? <laughs> like I'm, I'm too self self-conscious to be, I could never do something like that without having like a, a dialogue running in my head or a monologue running in my head about like, this is bullshit. Yeah, I don't think I could have faked that. Like, yeah. That's speaking of tongues. Yeah. But like you were, hard. it sounds like you were doing it as a kind of a joke. Well, I was like, this looks really fake. I wonder if they can tell the difference and they couldn't. And, or if they could, they didn't call me out on it. And so yeah, what are they going to do? Stop and in the middle of it. And yeah. Um, but what did, I mean, did it ever turn scary for you? Like the hellfire damnation? I mean, you clearly aren't still doing it. So what, what, what about it? Did you not like, I think it always felt really fake. Um, and it felt really class oriented, like, like people that dressed nicer would sit closer to the front and people that like weren't dressed as nice would be towards the back. And like, it seemed really mean. There just, was just audit. Was it, was that something that was just intuited or was that were the rows reserved for people? It was intuited. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I my family know. was on the second row, which is, yeah. My oh, mother yeah. did the church bulletin and my stepdad was like a deacon. So like we were, we were in the throes of it. Okay. So, and when did you, this was your whole childhood? Um, we had a different church before we moved to that town, but like we were, we were always like at church. So, but this wasn't like your stepdad was into it. And then when your mom married him, no, no, my stepfather went to a different church and when they married, they like, he came to my mother's church, oh, the one did. that I had been in since I was maybe eight. Did it do any damage? The church, <laughs> the experience? I don't know. That's a hard question. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like the Catholic church fucked with my head. Oh, I guess I have a lot of like, um, things that are like morals that are sort of instilled in me that like i have to fight against like reflexes where i'm like don't don't think that like what um like i like i think i'm really quickly judgmental like about people and like certainly about like you judging me right now no no (laughs) like anything like like sort of sexual like my my reflex is to sort of like well, rain was, judgment in my head i was gonna say like i feel like sexually like if you're raised in the catholic church and you're taught that you know, people who have premarital sex are going to go to hell and yes. it's a cardinal sin. That's a heavy thing to lay on a kid. And it's yeah. hard to, once that's been drilled into you, you can, you can undrill it, but it's hard. It's hard. And it remains in there. And there's some, you know, there's no doubt that it affected me sexually as a young, like adolescent. It makes you more frightened of yeah. those experiences. And I don't know, it pisses me off. Yeah. But, uh, and I remember too, like, you know, at times in my youth, like scoffing at, anybody who would tell me, you know, or I would, I would see people on TV, like there'd be like a, whatever, uh, 60 minutes and they would be interviewing people at such and such church in the deep South. And the parents would say, we homeschool our kids and we don't let them watch any TV or movies or all they do is like sing Kumbaya. And of course I would be like, Oh my God, you know, but as I've gotten older, I'm obviously, <laughs> I'm obviously not there. I don't believe in sitting around singing Kumbaya. But there is a part of me that really believes that what you take in uh, from a media perspective has a deep impact on how you feel. I'm not there yet. You're not there so. yet. Well, yeah, you're watching horror films. Yeah, yeah. You can just watch this stuff and it doesn't give you, like, doesn't affect your sleep or your mood. You don't. That doesn't. If I watch a lot of really bad sitcoms in a row, like, I start having nightmares about, like, <laughs> the characters of Modern Family. And, like, that's weird for me. But. Yeah, like, n- network sitcoms. Yeah. They're hard. Um, and I don't like them, but I, I get really easily sucked into to bad TV. Okay, but when you're watching these like really intense horror films and people are being mutilated and screaming and, and pain, doesn't affect you? No, I think it, it's again performative and there's artifice and like I don't know. 
Is it, do you think there's a correlation between the Pentecostal speaking in tongues and the uh, horror movies? I'm serious. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's something that all of my friends are really into. Like, and it, like, like part of it's nostalgia too, right? Like, I'm still watching these movies because I remember watching them with friends. Were you a goth teenager or anything like that? Did you have a gothic no, tendency? I think I probably looked a little like Kurt Cobain, like sort of unbathed and baggy. Stringy, flannelly, flannelly. Oh, so much flannel. Were you into uh, Scott Weiland? Am I even pronouncing this Scott Weiland? Weiland, the guy, the Stone Temple Pilots lead singer. He just died. No, I wasn't. My wife and her friends like all thought he was cute. <laughs> she was like very sad. I was like, I never. I mean, I'm very, I'm heartbroken that the guy died like that. Sure. I feel terrible for his family, but I, uh, I never was into their music. I never got it. I don't know. Um, I didn't hate them, but like, I wasn't like a fan. I think I liked I liked the Smashing Pumpkins a lot around that time. I, I like old Billy Corgan, not Billy Corgan now, because he's sort of crazy now. I feel like yeah. I had a really big crush on Billy Corgan when he wears that dress in the Ava Adore video. Like he looks really good in a dress. Okay, I can see I can see you liking Billy Corgan. Yeah, the picture's becoming clear. <laughs> Just horror movies and Billy Corgan. Sure. What's uh What's that song that goes? The world is a vampire. Is it Disarm? I don't know. I don't or know bullet the, with butterfly wings. In spite of my rage, I'm still just a rat. And yeah, I think, yeah. My daughter likes that song. It's a good song. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Um, so where were we? Pentecostals <laughs> speaking in tongues. Did you did you have to make a, an official break with the church? Did you ever have to tell your mom like, listen, this isn't for me, or was it just kind of like, oh, I'm at Georgia Southern. This is in my rearview mirror. Yeah, I just sort of quit coming home much and like didn't come home for Sundays. Um, I think. I think maybe my name is on a prayer list, the last I heard. And so a lot of strangers are praying for me. Oh, my God. Uh, somehow well, the preacher's wife, like, happened upon some things I had written, um, thanks to the Internet. Does your mom, like, do you get along with your mom? Like, do you, does um, she read your stuff? Like, the- um, We're just now talking again after maybe, like, a seven-year break. So I'm trying to get along with her. Yeah. It's difficult to do. Um, I don't think she understands what I'm doing, though. I think, like, she thinks I want to be a journalist. Because, like, she can understand writing, journalism. It's a leap she can make. Right. Um, and I'm just letting her letting her think that it's well, easier. Yeah. And, you know, it's tough because I think when uh, you're a child, and it's tough on both sides, but when a child winds up in a world or with interests that are a long way away from their parents, it's a it's a big gulf to bridge. Yeah. Yeah. And and you also, you know, you've had um, a range of experiences, I imagine, that your mom never had. Yeah. Yeah, you we know. don't have much to talk about. <laughs> yeah. um, and then your brother, it sounds like as well. Like you just, you're the, you're the one who flew the coop. Um, yeah, I'm the black sheep in the family, like, which is crazy because like, I feel like. You seem like such a good person. I feel like I'm like, I should present that way at least to them, but like, I'm not religious and I'm not like respectful where, where are you then are you atheist yeah, yeah sure. you're an atheist yeah you think when we die just lights out that's it yeah i think so you do anything at all like do you, are you into like uh paganism or anything like that no you like candles you meditate no none of that nothing i can't even do yoga because it's too boring it's too boring i think if i could have like a bunch of wine maybe i could yoga <laughs> right i think that would be more effective yoga what do you do to like what like so like human suffering the pain of life, uh, whatever, in whatever form it comes like, you know, just the bullshit that we have to deal with, uh, the ways in which we torture ourselves, whatever, like, how do you cope with it outside of the context of religion, 
you know, like, do, do you have like any methods or you just like roll through life and deal with things as they come? And yeah, I guess I, I just roll, That's roll it. through life. Yeah. I don't have some sort of spirituality, anything like that. Nothing. No, nothing. I have a cat and I think about the cat a lot. <laughs> What's your cat's name? His name is Elliot. Elliot. Um, and he's a, he's a black cat. Yeah. He's a, he's a black cat. Of course he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I used to have two black cats, but one of them then passed away. I've actually only had black cats my whole life. Like as a child, I had two different black cats um, and it's all coincidence. I never got a black cat on purpose. They come to you. I guess so. Like the one I have now is like the kitten that ran away the slowest. So what do you mean? Like, there were stray kittens, and they all tried to get away from me. And he also tried to get away from me. He just wasn't as quick as the other ones, so I grabbed him. Is he still slow? No, he's really mean, too. He's, like, really bitey. Like, that's how he wakes me up. He bites me in the head, and then I wake up. Um, he's wow. really attractive. He's really aesthetically pleasing. So, like... Well, I, had, I read something recently where it said, like, if domesticated cats were bigger, they would eat us. That too, and that that seems viable. Did you know cats are one of the only animals that can domesticate and undomesticate themselves at will? Like they can decide to be tame or not. No. Like on their own, um, it's like a conscious choice they can make. So that's really interesting. So, like, if if your cat gets out of your house and goes missing, and let's say you lived out in the wild, yeah, it would be able to adapt. More yeah, it can make the choice. It can make the choice. Like a, like a switch. I had a fr- yeah, I had a friend who had a cat, and I was staying at his house when I was a kid. And I remember it was a really mean cat. I remember waking up, and it was on my chest, oh. and it was hissing. Oh no! It was terrifying. <laughs> um, I had a I had a boyfriend for a while that the cat didn't like very much, and I would wake up in the night, and the boyfriend would be shrieking because the cat was like rapidly attacking him in the face. And my reflex in the middle of the night is to hop up and go see if the cat's okay. I'm like, Are you upset? What's wrong? <laughs> Did that boy upset you? <laughs> um, so yeah, the cat's still around. So what's your what's your relationship like with this cat? Are you, like, do you guys get like, get along? Yeah, I think my my whole life, like in a sort of a creepy, like generic way, centers around the cat. Like I'm definitely a cat person. Like we're together all the time. There's a dog, and he's like less than. Like he's there. What kind of dog you got? He's like a beagle chow mutt. But he's like 11 and arthritic with cataracts and heart disease. Oh, I'm like, God. he's like an object. Yeah. Like, he's really kind. He doesn't bark or play. He just sits. And the cat dominates. Sometimes I hear him crying, and what's happened is that uh, the cat's sprawled across the dog's bed, and the dog's, like, sitting a few feet away, like, whimpering because he wants to be on the bed. Yeah. And then I, like, take photos of it and put it on Instagram <laughs> and, like, don't do anything about it. Yeah. So what happens after you get your PhD here in Los Angeles? Are you already plotting a move back to Alabama? No. <laughs> um, I think anywhere I can find a job is where I would live. And I think I'm at a, an advantage because I'm willing to live in, like, the middle of nowhere. You are? Yeah, I'm like a tiny town. You don't give fine. a shit. You'll move anywhere. Yeah, I think I would love a town that I could easily drive and walk in. People don't walk here. It's so crazy. I know. Like, I walked the 40 minutes to, like, the metro station one day, and my roommate was like, what are you doing? People don't walk that far. Yeah. Like, I'd like to walk. Yeah. I go on long walks oh, in the city. Yeah. Like, it seems like weather-wise, it would be a city where you could ride your bicycle. It should be easier it's to... It's so scary. But it's scary because there's no bike lanes. Yeah. It's, I saw a, a biker, like, a car, like, almost hit him, and they both stopped, and the guy got out, and they were, like, screaming at each other. So yeah. Like, it's too nervous You to have to be... Out. Like, I used to bike a lot in this city. I don't do it as much now because of kids. I feel like mm-hmm. it's a little bit... I, I need to be a little bit more careful, but, like, I used to... I put my headphones in. Oh, no. Which you're not supposed to do. Yeah. But, like, what I found is that, like, I would just... You have to be really hyper-focused. And I would get... that. That's, it was sort of, like, meditative or, in a weird way, calming. 
because you didn't have much margin for error. You'd be on your bike and like heavy traffic, <laughs> like a foot between you and the car. And, you know, I'm too nervous for that. Yeah. It gets to be a bit much. Yeah, I'm nervous, like even in the car. So I can't imagine like, it's got to feel like coming from a small town, you get to Los Angeles, there's just a lot going on. The traffic and the speed of life is just detectable, I bet. They're really, like, angry, too. Like, everyone's honking their horn, and, like, whatever they're doing is the most important thing. Uh-huh. And it's amazing that all of them have the most important thing, but they do. And you're at USC? Yeah. And you take the metro down there every yeah, day? Yeah, I get on, like, Culver City, and just, there's a stop right on campus, so it's easy. But you walk to that stop every day? Um, I've been driving lately, but sometimes it's hard to find parking at Culver City. Um, and I Ubered to the, the metro once or twice, and I felt like a jackass for Ubering to the metro ubering to the metro yeah i got like on a big uber kick when i first got here because i was so terrified of driving and it like it's so expensive if you just uber everywhere right so. even uber x um no i would i would do like um Black uber car? pool oh what is uber pool you're like it's you and like some other people that oh, are also can... that also need rides so they carpool you oh no shit which is nice yeah i've met a lot of really interesting people just packed into a car? Yeah. Anything weird or unsavory? No, um, I was going home one night and two girls were like going out to the club and they're like, come to the club with us. And I'm like, I'm going home. Oh, you didn't go? No, I didn't. It was like 10 o'clock at night, you know, on a Friday. So like, I'm, I'm going to bed. I mean, I don't want to presume, but I don't think that you would enjoy going to the club in LA all that much. I don't think I would. Yeah. I can't imagine. Doesn't seem like you're seen. No. Uh, what about Los Angeles do you like, if anything? I like that it's warm all the time. That's nice. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have to wear a coat. I just did a year in Illinois where I had to have snow boots and a winter coat and scarves and hat. Wait, why were you in Illinois? I did a year of a PhD program there that like, I just didn't stick with. Where? Uh, Normal Illinois. That's uh, David Foster Wallace land. Yeah. 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 Is that what, Southern Illinois or what is it called? It's Illinois Illinois State. State. Yeah. Yeah. I did a year there. And you weren't into it? Uh, it wasn't a good fit, and, like, I just hated living there. Like, if you go outside and cry because you're cold, your tears just freeze right on your face. I touched my damp hair, and it broke off in my hand, like... For real? Yeah, yeah, your hair freezes and it can break. Jesus. Um, So it was just terrible, like... Then you got into USC? I got into USC, so I came here. It's, a, it's like, a better deal, too, so here I am. What, you get more money? More money and, like, dental insurance. I've never had dental insurance in my life. I don't think it's great dental insurance. You going to the dentist? No, but, like, it's looming. I'm like, it's... I'm going to go to the dentist. <laughs> Can't wait to get that root canal. Yeah, I think cool. I need all my wisdom teeth out, but I think it's still going to be expensive. Um, and you're working on this book, and you're going to be a teacher. I guess, or something. What else would you be? I don't know. I, I'm hoping to, to figure that out. I'm hoping I have some time to think about it. I don't have to teach my first two years in the program, so, like, it's sort of like I have some free time. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have, uh, like, writer friends who you're, at, like, turning to and asking for, for advice or what should I do with my life? Do <laughs> <laughs> you have anybody out there who serves in that capacity? Um, and if so, can you recommend them to me? <laughs> I think I, like, constantly lament that, and, and no one... Everyone's like lamenting alongside me. We don't know either. Yeah. Sad. Let's eat. Well, see, this is the thing, though. It's like, has it always been this way for writers? And are we foolish to complain? Like, it's just always been difficult. It's never been, oh, the world has never been amenable to people with these interests. It's always been kind of working in opposition to. Or was it better back in the day? And has it gotten worse? And is anybody who goes after this in some way kind of like a, a foolish idealist 
I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like I sometimes can get into a mode where I start to criticize myself. Like, what are you? You're so spoiled. You get to, you want to just go write your stories or whatever. And, um, and you expect that this is going to work. Uh, I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but do you, do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, I I know what you're getting at. You ever feel like that? Oh yeah. All the time. I like often also wish that like early on I had learned some sort of trade, like air conditioner repair. Coding. Yeah, like anything that, like, you could just get a job. Because I'm like, I could have written and done that. Yeah. Um, but instead, I'm like, because, like, academia creates this false thing. Like, like creative writing. Like, you don't go out into the world and say, well, I'm a creative writer. Like, that's mm-hmm. not a real thing. It only exists in academia. Um, so, like, that's a weird thing to work towards. Well, I'm like, I'm in this, uh, I've been thinking lately, but like, this, this, whole th- this whole notion that I grew up with. Uh, like, I come from this, like, you know sort of apple pie family my parents have been together forever um like extremely supportive of everything like i just have no complaints Uh, i'm one of those lucky people and as a kid it was always like you know do what you love pursue your dreams you know the stuff that parents you know i think everybody wishes their parents would say to them my parents said to me but um and this is not to denigrate them or or you know that kindness but this is more just like a commentary on the way that the world works like I don't know if pursuing your passion or like looking to your work life and wanting it to be like your, your dreamy passion is actually like a healthy approach. Yeah. You should have something else. You need like, I think the way to do it is you got to have like, you have to have really specialized skills that are really valuable. (laughs) And I guess, well, I mean, I'm just like, I feel like if you do that, then you can you can start to have more leverage over your time, and then you can build time to do the creative writing, and then eventually, you know, if you have uh, the talent and the time to cultivate it, eventually maybe that can become your specialized skill. But it's pretty hard to distinguish yourself. Like I know so many really talented writers, but you know, for whatever reasons, they just don't have the big readership, or you know, they're really talented, but their sensibility is such that it's never going to find a wide audience because what they do is sort of narrow in terms of its appeal to the broader culture. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, that's something I've been wrestling with. Like, is it a good thing to tell as a parent? Is it a good thing to tell your kids, you know, pursue what you love and follow your passion? Or is it more like, you know, you should try to think about this more practically. I I wish I had been told to be more practical. I did a really bad job of, like, undergrad, though. I think I had, like, a year where I didn't go to any of my classes, and I had, like, a 0.0, so, like... Why? What were you... Was that the year, like, last year of, like, doing drugs and having fun? Like, and some of it was... I was just in my dorm room, just, like... Didn't want to leave. Yeah, I wasn't moving. I think my roommate, like, hated me. She's like, you're always here. I am. (laughs) I am here. Uh, So, I don't know. I don't think I was ever going to be, like, good at math, so... So wait, 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 were you depressed that year? I don't know. I guess I was. Like, I didn't know it at the time. Um, but, like, maybe I was because I didn't really do much. And like, you, Were you stoned? No. I just, like, wore my pajamas all the time. Like, everywhere I went, like, I wore, wore pajamas and, like, slept a lot. You were depressed. I guess so. <laughs> but at 18, like, I didn't know that that was, like, a thing. Yeah. Like, um, all right. Well, I hope that you enjoy uh, your time in Los Angeles, like, as you get to know it better. Thanks, me too. And I appreciate you coming over here and sitting down with me to talk. And I wish you well on the PhD and uh, on this book that you're working on. Thank you. All right, guys. 
That is Brandy Wells. Her new novel is called This Boring Apocalypse, available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. You can find Brandy online at brandymwells.com. Uh, she's also on the Twitter. What is her Twitter handle? Hang on a second. Let me look this up for you. I think it's at Brandy M. Wells. I could be wrong. Hang on a second. Yeah, it's at Brandy M. Wells on Twitter. Go follow Brandy on Twitter. Keep up with her life via Twitter at Brandy M. Wells. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Uh, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. You could perhaps track down this uh, beautiful song. Imagine me dancing to this song. Don't forget about the app and the book club as possible last-minute holiday gift ideas. You can find out more about the Other People app and uh, Premium over at uh, otherppl.com. You can find out more about the Nervous Breakdown book club at thenervousbreakdown.com. If you'd like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know your thoughts. Tell me a story. Lavish me with praise. Pepper me with criticism. I'm sorry about the monologue. I don't mean to get dark. I feel like even talking about it gives credence to these people. It should be completely ignored. But I just couldn't take it anymore. It's driving me crazy. The fear-mongering. The fucking media. All of it. It's ridiculous. That's like, I feel like this is a good song choice. This is how we should respond with songs like this. Disco. <laughs> Disco in the face of violent extremism, psychotic behavior. Please remember that Nathaniel West died one day after F. Scott Fitzgerald and that uh, Ernest Hemingway died one day after Louis Ferdinand Celine. That's all for now. Thanks to Brandy M. Wells. Brandy M. Wells. What does that middle initial stand for? I never found that out. The mystery deepens. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Hope you're hanging in there as the holidays approach. If the holidays are a difficult time for you, hang in there. They're almost over. This too shall pass. Go dancing. Go dancing alone. Nobody knows who you are. Anonymously dance. Is that a good idea? I'm giving you advice. I'm advising you to do something that I myself would probably never do. Anonymously dancing. <laughs> do they still have disco, uh, disco techs? I guess they do. But do they play disco? People discoing? Dancing to the disco? All right. I think there's... I'm going to try to do a holiday show. We'll see. Fingers crossed. This show ends uh, in uncertainty. This could be the last show of 2015. I don't know if it is. I don't know if it isn't. Can't be certain. The mystery deepens. (laughs) 